This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 6, No Good Deed Unpunished. Before I get started with this episode, I'd like to say that I'm gratified that this podcast is gaining subscribers. As long as you keep listening, I'll keep making new episodes. I'd love to hear your comments or feedback, so please take a minute and go to my website, www.mahabharatapodcast.com, and leave a comment. Thanks for your support. In the last episode, we met Bhishma and his two brothers, Chitrangada and Vichitravirya. We left off with the death of their father, Santanu, when the two youngest sons were still children. Despite the fact that Bhishma was the eldest son, had the most experience, and was by far the most capable among the three brothers, he had sworn an oath that Satyavati would be mother of the king, and so he placed his brother, Chitrangada, in line for the throne. Bhishma then took over the post of regent, while his stepmother, Satyavati, supervised. When Chitrangada came of age, he was crowned king and ruled over Hastinapur as a powerful warrior. He must have been the type to go out looking for trouble, because he ended up in an extended duel with the king of the Gandharvas, also named Chitrangada. Gandharvas are a type of nature spirit, perhaps something like an angel, or possibly like the elves in Tolkien's Middle-earth. So you can imagine that it's not easy to kill a Gandharva, let alone a Gandharva king. So, after three years of fighting, the Gandharva king was victorious, and the Bharati king, Chitrangada, was dead. Bhishma, of course, could not take up the throne himself, so the young weakling, Vichitravirya, was made king. I'm only guessing he was a weakling, but I think you'll agree as we look at the subsequent events. His mother, Satyavati, consulted with Bhishma, and they decided the boy needed wives. It so happened that in the kingdom of Kashi, modern-day Varanasi, the king's daughters were going to hold a Swayamvara, which is a ceremony in which the brides choose their husbands from a group of suitors. Rather than sending the boy Vichitravirya himself and hoping he might get chosen, they decided they would have a better chance going the old-fashioned route, snatch and grab. Bhishma mounted his chariot in full armor and rode to Kashi. When he got there, he headed straight for the three young princesses, pulled them onto his chariot, then gave a brief lecture on Dharma. He listed the eight forms of marriage, from arranged marriage to elopement to rape, and then declared that abducting a princess was the very best form of marriage for the warrior caste. He then challenged them all to try to stop him, and tore off as fast as his horses could run. Of course, all the young bloods who were lined up for the ceremony immediately stripped off their finery and jumped on their chariots to stop this kidnapping. Even though there were thousands of them in pursuit of one man, that one man was Bhishma, and he was unstoppable. Out of the crowd of attackers, King Salva forced Bhishma to turn and defend himself. Calling him Lecher and telling him to stop, Salva fought a few rounds with Bhishma, showering him with arrows. He managed to slow Bhishma's pace somewhat, but then Bhishma killed Salva's horses and charioteer, thus ending his pursuit. Bhishma arrived in Hastinapur triumphant, with the three fiancés for his younger brother. As preparations for the marriage were underway, the eldest girl, named Amba, approached Bhishma. She told him that she had already set her heart on another man, that same King Salva who had nearly stopped Bhishma's escape. She told Bhishma that the two of them had a prior arrangement, and thus it would be unlawful for her to marry anyone else. Considering this, Bhishma consulted with the learned Brahmins, and they concluded that she should be allowed to leave for her betrothed. Please don't forget about Amba. Her story is still far from over, but we'll hear of her more in a later episode. As for the two younger princesses, named Ambika and Ambalika, both were married to Vichitravirya. This marriage lasted seven years, but no child was conceived. Then the king, Vichitravirya, died. 
This left the Kuru dynasty in a real crisis. Their last living heir of the dynasty was an avowed celibate. Something urgent needed to be done. Satyavati was the matriarch of the dynasty and therefore in charge of the continuation of the line. Consulting the laws and precedents, she came to a conclusion and instructed Bhishma to impregnate the dead king's two wives and thus save the dynasty from extinction. Bhishma's reply was typically passive-aggressive. He said, Remember when my father wanted so badly to marry you? Remember the oath I swore in order to satisfy your father? Well, that oath of celibacy is the highest law, and I will not violate it. Perhaps Bhishma took some grim satisfaction as Satyavati babbled inconsolably in her hunger for grandsons. He then suggested a solution, but first he had a couple of stories to tell. Bhishma told her about the Brahmin Bhargava named Parasurama, who, in retaliation for his father's murder, angrily killed off the entire race of Kshatriyas, or warrior caste. We are mostly familiar with the Brahmin caste as being occupied with the Vedas and rituals, but there was one group of Brahmins, called Bhargavas, who took up the occupation of arms. They are said to have quarreled with the Kshatriyas, and, in this case, actually killed them all off. The Kshatriya women, bereft of their husbands, turned to the Brahmins, and with them repopulated the warrior caste. Just in case you're a little confused about these terms, ancient India divided society into four hereditary classes called Varnas. The Brahmins, who functioned as priests, the Kshatriyas, who bore arms and held kingship, Vaishyas, who were the merchant or bourgeois class, and the Shudras, who were peasants or serfs. This is generally referred to as the caste system, and some vestiges of it remain to this day in Hindu society, but it's generally not polite to ask. We'll mostly hear about the Brahmin and Kshatriya Varnas in the Mahabharata, since presumably they would be the only ones literate and wealthy enough to have a story about themselves preserved for this long. Bhishma then told a second story about a wise seer called Utatya and his wife Mamata. Utatya's younger brother was a famous Burhaspati, who was the priest to the gods. One time, while alone together, Burhaspati assaulted his sister-in-law. She yelled at him to stop, saying that she was already pregnant with her husband's child, and so for him to spill his seed would be a waste. It's an odd argument to make at a time like this, but I guess these old rishis were very conservative with their semen. In any case, the old boy was too far gone, and he shot off his wad. As this happened, the little fetus spoke up, saying, Boh! There's no room in here for two. You have wasted your seed, and I was here first. Thus annoyed and ashamed by the cheeky little fetus, Burhaspati cursed it to blindness and suffering. The child, Dirgatamas, was born blind, but nevertheless grew up into a powerful Brahmin and fathered four sons of his own. When he was quite old, the sons decided that the cost of keeping him was not worth it, so they tied him to a log and sent him adrift down the river. As the blind old man floated down the river, he was rescued by a wise king named Balan. Balan happened to be sterile and had no children. He recognized Dirgatamas's greatness and asked the old man to lie with his wife and beget children. Dirgatamas agreed, but the wife was unwilling, and tried to fool him by putting servant girls in the bed. The old man did his thing with the servants, but also reported the substitution to the king. The king then compelled his wife to do her duty, which she did, and thus the king's dynasty was carried on to the next generation. The point Bhishma was trying to make was that when a line of kings faced the danger of extinction, they should turn to a qualified Brahmin to engender children on the remaining women of the clan. Upon hearing these stories, Satyavati decided to make a confession. She told Bhishma about her old job running the ferry and the randy Brahmin Parasara who assailed her. See episode 3. 
She explained that she had given birth to a Brahmin named Krishna Dvaipayana Vyasa. She recalled that her son had offered his help if at any time she needed him, and now they could use him to beget children on her two widowed daughter-in-laws. Bhishma considered her proposal and decided that this plan was perfectly according with Dharma and in the best interest of the dynasty. With Bhishma's approval, Satyavati meditated on her son, and off in the wilderness, while holding some kind of sadhu seminar on the Vedas, Vyasa heard her call and magically teleported himself to his mother's presence. Satyavati welcomed her son and then made a brief speech to him, worthy of any lawyer. Sons, O sage, are born the common property of the father and the mother. The mother is no less their owner, to be sure, than the father. Just as you are my firstborn son, Vichitravirya is my lastborn son. Therefore, just as Bhishma is Vichitravirya's brother on the father's side, so you are his brother on the mother's side. This son of Santanu, Bhishma, whose word is his strength, is keeping faith with his word, and has no mind either to have children or to rule the kingdom. Now, out of esteem for your brother, for the continuity of the family, at Bhishma's word and my own behest, out of compassion for the creatures and for the protection of everyone, you must do what I am proposing without any cruelty of heart. The two wives of your younger brother, who are like daughters of a god, lovely and in the bloom of their youth, are yearning for sons by the law. Beget children on them that are worthy of our family and of continuing our progeny. It's interesting how Satyavati formed her request in such a precise and formal manner. I think it makes it clear that what she was asking was not really a generally accepted practice. It's as if she were worried that her son might take offense or find a fault in her reasoning. In any event, she need not have worried, because Vyasa was perfectly willing to do his part. He only stipulated that the women observe a vow for a year before you would get started. Satyavati objected to this, saying that a year was far too long to wait and the dynasty was in trouble so action was needed right away. Vyasa replied that he would agree to doing the act directly, but that the women should be warned and prepared for his ugliness, bad odor, filthy clothing, and emaciated body. Satyavati then met with her two daughters-in-law, Ambika and Ambalika, and convinced them that they should lie with her eldest son. I guess she had a hard enough time convincing them that this act of incest was okay, because she neglected to mention that her oldest son had the hygiene of weak old roadkill. They started with Ambika, bathed and perfumed her, and left her in bed to await her partner. As she lay there, she imagined it was someone like Bhishma, or perhaps his better-looking older brother, coming to make love to her. Imagine her horror when, without even putting out the lights, this little dreadlocked sadhu with skin like moldy beef jerky entered the room and wanted to get it on. The poor girl put up with his advances, but closed her eyes and covered her face until he left the room. I guess even the most otherworldly hobo still has his vanity, because Vyasa was pretty annoyed that the girl was scared of him and had refused to act like she enjoyed it. He announced to Satyavati that she would indeed have her first grandson, that he would be wise, strong, and virtuous, but because Ambika hid her eyes, her son would be blind. His name would be Dhritarashtra. I guess Satyavati didn't learn her lesson that forewarned is forearmed, because she also neglected to warn her second daughter-in-law. So, when Vyasa went to her, she turned pale with fright. Again, Vyasa successfully produced a son, but while this son would have his sight, he would have a sickly pallor. He would be called Pandu the Pale. Following the birth of these two sons, Satyavati called on Ambika to have one more son, just in case something happened to the first two. Ambika agreed, but when the time came for her to lay with that awful man, she lost her nerve, 
and compelled one of her servants to take her place in the bed. This probably points out one of the flaws of the caste system, because this low-class girl did her job the way it should have been done by her betters. She greeted Vyasa with all respect, served him, and pleasured him all night. Vyasa, of course, knew of the deception all along, so the next morning he told her that she would no longer be a slave, and that the child she had conceived would become the most sagacious man in the world. This child was called Vidur, the third brother who, born of a commoner, would not be eligible to be king. After this final act, Vyasa announced that he had fulfilled his commitment and then vanished. Back in episode 4, I mentioned the essay called The Partial Incarnations. In there, we are told that Vidur was a partial incarnation of the god Dharma, thus explaining his total enlightenment with issues concerning law and ethics. It is interesting that in the Mahabharata, they talk of Dharma as not only an idea, meaning law, ethics, righteousness, but it is also known as a god. Remember how this whole story was being recited to King Janamajaya at the snake sacrifice? Well, after hearing about the birth of Vidur, King Janamajaya interrupted Vaisampayana and asked him what the god Dharma could possibly have done to be born the son of a Shudra. Vaisampayana answered him with a story about a Brahmin named Mandavya, who was known as a great ascetic. One of his favorite yoga practices was to stand outside his hut with his hands upraised and observing a vow of silence. One day, while doing this yoga, a group of bandits, in hot pursuit by the king's guards, came across his hut and hid inside along with their plunder. When the guards arrived, they asked the hermit about the bandits. The hermit, of course, refused to move or speak, so the guards searched the hut and found the bandits. They suspected the hermit of being an accomplice, so they also arrested him. When the hermit and the other bandits were brought before the king, they were all summarily sentenced to death by impaling. Justice was swift, and all the accused were immediately impaled, including the Brahmin Mandavya. Mandavya was an accomplished yogi, and so, even though he had a stake driven through his body and was suspended off the ground, he did not die. After several days of this, he caught the attention of the king. The king was immediately contrite and ordered the hermit to be removed from the stake and asked his forgiveness. The hermit forgave the king, but unfortunately the stake could not be removed. All they could do was cut off the ends, leaving the poor guy to walk around with the stake embedded in him. Fortunately, according to the thinking of the times, such a condition of suffering counted as an austerity, and thus he gained immense spiritual power in return for his suffering. Using these new powers, the miserable Brahmin traveled to the realm of the gods and interrogated Lord Dharma himself. He asked the god, what had he done to deserve such a horrible fate in this life? Dharma replied that when Mandavya was just a child, he had impaled flies with blades of grass, and for that youthful act of violence he must suffer karmic retribution. Mandavya castigated the Lord Dharma, saying that the sin was small, but the punishment horrific. Furthermore, he was an ignorant child when he had done it. Therefore, he cursed the god, saying that he should be born a man and the son of a shudra at that. To top it off, he laid down a new rule for posterity, saying that nothing should be counted a sin if committed before the age of 14 years. Thus, we are only karmically responsible for our actions after we have reached the age of discrimination. This explained how the god Dharma was incarnated as the son of a slave. The childhood years of the three princes was a veritable golden age for the land of the Kurus. The three boys each became learned in law and the Vedas and trained at arms and government, while their uncle Bhishma acted as regent and protector of the nation. 
Finally, as the boys reached manhood, the second brother, Pandu, was made king. The eldest, Dhritarashtra, was disqualified because of his blindness, and Vidur was disqualified because of his birth. So, once again, just as Devapi was passed over to make his younger brother Santanu king, and Bhishma was passed over to make his younger brother Chitrangada king, for the third generation the oldest brother was again passed over. Only this time there would be consequences for this decision. That's it for now. Next time we'll see the Kuru princes enter the international marriage market, forming alliances with their neighbors. Also, we'll hear about the birth of both our heroes and our villains, all 105 of them. Thanks for listening. <laughs>